Well, I hope you all had a Merry Christmas. I know we did in the Autry household. It was a lot of fun and uh, excited to be worshiping with you guys this morning. We'll be back in the book of John, so we finished up our Advent series going through hope, love, peace, joy. And so we'll be back in the book of John this morning. We'll be in chapter 4 and beginning at verse 43. So if you'd open up your copy of God's Word there. And if not, we have a, 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 some of the, that text printed for you in the order of worship this morning. I'm really excited to return back to the book of John. Just a couple information real quick, just for you to remember. That John was probably the disciple that was closest to Jesus. In fact, he titles himself gives himself this title of the one whom Jesus has loved. So you really get a perspective when you're reading through John about of someone who was super close uh, to Jesus Christ and, and really got a unique perspective there. And I just want to remind you, just like I do every single time uh, that we read the portion of the book of John, the point. And here's the point. We, we learn that in John chapter 20 and verse 31 where we read these words. But these are written to you that you may believe in Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The entire point of the book of John is to systematically prove to your mind and your heart that Jesus is the Son of God and that He is the Messiah and the only way to be free from your sin. And so everything, as a good author does, he doesn't put everything he can possibly put or she can put in the book, but they put only the things that they feel like are necessary. And so every text that we have is for that purpose including several of the miracles that Jesus does uh, in, in this one this, that we're looking at this morning. Jesus has so many more miracles than we have recorded in Scripture. In fact, many times the writers just say things like, and Jesus did other things. You're just letting that, all that go. But, but this one specifically is written in here so that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And I think that one of the things that it does, like almost every passage of Scripture does, is it challenges so many of our assumptions that we are making as we encounter the truth of God. And so one of the things that we're talking about any time we approach a miracle like this is do... do do we struggle with the reality of miracles as it's presented in Scripture? Do we wince at the fact when we have to explain to someone else if you're a believer in Christ and you do this, uh, and someone asks, do you really believe that Jesus did all of those things that, that the Bible claims He did? Do you really believe that? And to be able to say unequivocally, absolutely, I believe that, or to admit, no, I struggle a little bit with that as well. And, and one of the things that I want to challenge you to do today, I think the challenge that this text presents to us, and I'll explain why in just a minute, is for us to seriously ask this question. Why do you believe what you believe? To take that, that question and let it sink down deep. Why do you believe what you believe? Not just about the Bible, about anything. About everything in your life. Why? Why do you believe it? There needs to be a reason. And if you don't know why you believe what you believe, then you're in danger of either having a false belief or just simply not knowing. Both of those categories are a problem. Now, I had to go to the dentist this week. And, um, and, and you know, no one is just jacked about going to the dentist. So if, if you do, there's something wrong with you, right? And so I had to go to the dentist this week and... I, you know, I've never in my life wanted to be a dentist. I've never wanted to stick my hands in people's mouth. 
But the one perk I feel like is there is trying to carry on a conversation with them while my hands are in their mouth and then watching them try to respond. Like, y'all do that dance, right, with the dentist? Like, uh, they always are trying to get you to say things or talk about things whenever their hands are in your mouth, and it's just this weird experience. And I, and I thought about it as I was sitting in the chair. It's actually better. As awkward as it is for him to try to carry on a conversation with me while his hands are in my mouth, it might be worse if he said nothing. Because then I might get a little, a little worried, right? You know? But anyway, so right before, this, this particular dentist knows I'm a pastor, and we have great conversation before and then halfway during whenever he's got his hands in my mouth. But he, he always wants to ponder life's deep realities with me whenever he's got his hands in my mouth. And I thought he asked me a really interesting question, even though he had just put this umbrella in my mouth and I couldn't respond to it at the moment. But as he's putting the umbrella around one of my teeth and... Uh, He says this, he goes, Pastor, we're living in such a divisive world right now. Everything is super politically charged and divisive. Besides prayer, what can we do? And I said, ah, you know, I I didn't, you know, I said, let me, let's wait a minute. And I'd love to ask that question. But isn't that a great question? Besides prayer, what can we do in this super politically charged and divisive world that, that we live in? And so I had some time to think about it because I couldn't talk. And so I, I did. And, and this is what, whenever we finally got done with everything, and, and he asked me the question again, which I was hoping he, he would, he said, okay, what you got? And I said, in my opinion, the, the, besides prayer, the one thing that we really need to do is to examine what we believe and to really know why we believe it. And he was like, okay. And I asked him that question. I responded that way, rather, for two reasons. Number one, I was trying to prompt a conversation about Jesus, which is always what I'm doing, always trying to ask questions to prompt a conversation about Jesus. But secondly, one of the things that has happened to me, and I'm sure it's happened to you during COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter and transgender things and all of these things, is it's really forced us in many ways to figure out what we believe. Because there's challenges around every different corner. We had to, I, during the whole couple years this past, I had to figure out what, what role should the government have in our lives. What do I believe about that? Do we live in a systematically racist country or not? How is, is COVID-19, what should I believe about that? We had to really dig deep, at least I did, and I think many of you did as well, to figure out what we believed. And in the midst of this really charged environment that we live in, I think it's extremely important for us to know why we believe what we believe and whether or not it's true. Because there's a lot of stuff going around that's not true. And that's always been the reality, right? And so that is what, and then it's interesting, we're looking at this question, or this passage this morning where Jesus heals a man's son from 16 miles away just by saying it like that. And we have a miracle in this this passage. And what I'm begging you to do today and the rest of your life, and this may sound like a strange thing for a pastor to say, but I'm begging you to question everything. Question everything and find out if it's true. Please don't have a borrowed faith. I feel like many of us, by default, 
get our beliefs from our friends or get our belief from uh, the popular sources of information that we like to get information from or, or maybe we inherited our beliefs from our families. That's the wrong way to do it. Why do you believe what you believe? Christianity begs that of us. The title of the sermon is this. Blind faith not required. Because God never has never and will never ask us to believe something without a reason to believe it and a really good reason to believe it. Blind faith is not required. God never asks you to believe anything blindly. He has proven himself and will continue to do so, and he does so in this passage. So let's take a look. This is God's Word. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43. And after two days he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they had also been there. And once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. And when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus replied, You may go. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judah to Galilee. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Pray with me. Father in heaven, as we consider your word, simple prayer is this. Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight. God, that you would glorify yourself, that we would be able to come and behold who you are. Help us to worship you over the word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The big idea this morning is really simple. It goes like this. If there is no proof, then there is no truth. God never requires blind faith. If there is no proof, then there is no truth. God never requires blind faith. And if you're Southern, if there ain't no proof, then there ain't no truth. Okay, however, way, however way you want to look at it. What I'm trying to convey, and what I think this passage is conveying, what I think the entire Bible conveys, is that God never asks us to believe blindly. We should be very informed. Blind faith is believing something just because, even though you have no real data or facts behind it to believe it, you just should. God never asks us to do something. If you can't prove then something is true, then why would you believe it? 
Now, that sounds simple enough, but I think we really struggle here, especially in the age of, of mass media pre- uh, presenting ideas to us and social media where we can know everybody's opinion at everybody's time and we can feel the pressure of believing things that other people believe perhaps greater than we ever have before. But it's very simply know why you believe what you believe. I'm going to be honest. I rarely meet people that know why they believe what they believe. I, I do. One of my favorite questions in conversations is why, just simply, why do you believe that? And just listen. I don't, I'm not going to de- necessarily need to debate with them, but just, just tell me. Why do you believe the things that you believe? And the, and the most common answer that we frequently get is because I always have. Or I've never thought about it before. Well, God wants you to think about it. God has given you more than enough evidence. And hear me when I say this. Blind faith will not last. As soon as it is tested, it will crumble because it's built on a foundation of sand. You must know why you believe what you believe. This morning, we're going to see that there's a very close relationship between faith and truth. Extremely close relationship. Very briefly, we're going to look at five realities about the relationship between faith and truth. Five realities about the relationship between faith and truth. Number one, believing something passionately does not make it true. Believing something passionately does not make it true. In the beginning of chapter 4, uh, Jesus is, is at the Passover feast and he's performing these miracles and he's teaching these things and the, uh, the group of religious leaders that were extremely zealous, that they, they really took their religion seriously, was named the Pharisees, and they had a real problem with what Jesus was doing. They were causing a lot of problems and so Jesus left Jerusalem because of that, beginning at chapter 4. And then we've got the whole episode we spent several weeks on with the woman in the well at Samaria. I'm not going to go through all that, I'm just going to say this. Jesus makes a very simple proclamation to this woman. He tells a a woman her belief. And there was a revival right there in Samaria, a place where you would never think it was possible. And then Jesus leaves that area where they've just received the message that he came to bring, and he goes back to his own people. And they don't believe. They see Jesus as a miracle worker, but they they don't see it. In fact, the Pharisees are always on his heel. The reason he went to Samaria in the first place was he knew the Pharisees wouldn't track him down there. Because it didn't matter what Jesus did. They were entrenched. They weren't, no evidence was going to sway them away from what they believed, even though Jesus' miracles should have given them plenty of evidence to do that. Okay? They, but many people are in the same boat. They are, so con- they are so convincing with their passion. They are tempted, and we're tempted to agree with them just because they're so passionate about it. But passion does not equal truth. I call it the chicken little syndrome. You're familiar with the story, right? Apple or acorn, I think it was, falls on little chicken's head. She thinks the sky is falling. And so what does she do? She's passionate about it, believes it to the core of who she is. The the sky is falling. And then the the cast of characters, right? Henny Penny, Goosey Lucy, Turkey Lurkey, all those characters, they believe her. They have no evidence. They just believe her passion. we got to go tell the king the sky is falling until they meet the fox, Foxy Loxy. And he says, oh yeah, the sky is falling. Follow me this way. And leads them to their death. Why? Because they believed passion instead of evidence. Right? 
passion is not equal the same thing. Now, many people, in the context of this passage, many people saw Jesus' miracles. They, they Jesus was doing plenty of miracles, but it wasn't enough to convince the Pharisees. They were so blinded by their pride, they were so entrenched with they, what they wanted to believe that they couldn't see the reality of the things that Jesus was doing could only be done by God himself. They were so blinded to that reality, except for one of them named Nicodemus, which we read about in chapter 3. He couldn't put together his beliefs with the reality of what Jesus was doing, so he came and investigated himself. They didn't want to change their beliefs, the Pharisees. They refused to examine their beliefs, and they stayed in their false beliefs all the way to condemnation in hell. Um, the pressure of the Pharisees, again, is what sent Jesus into uh, Samaria in the first place. Now, there's a very confusing two verses in verses 43 and, and 44. In fact, most of the commentaries that I read spent most of their time trying to figure out what was going on because it says a prophet is not welcome in his hometown, and Galilee was his home area, right? That's where he grew up. But then on the next sentence it says the Galileans welcomed him. So what's going on there? What does that mean? And there's a lot, there's a lot of different theories. I'm going to save you the time of all the different information I read and tell you, excuse me, uh, the conclusion that I've come to based on my research. I think what Jesus is talking about there in verse 44, when he says, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country, He's pointing back to what just happened in Samaria. He did a simple miracle, told him he was the Messiah, and they said, he's the Messiah. And they believed. But when he goes back to his own country and does miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, and then he, he teaches, they don't believe anything he says. They're just looking for the next miracle. So there was no honor in terms of true belief when he goes back into his own country. In fact, the entire reason that Jesus spends so much time teaching and so much time doing miracles is he's having to rewire what the Jews believe a Messiah actually is. And that's what his whole ministry looks like. You ever wondered when you've read through the Gospels why Jesus kind of goes, shh, not yet, y'all chill out, wait a minute? It's because he's having to rewire what they believe salvation actually looks like. Okay? Samaritans, they believed based on that first miracle. I think that's what's going on there. But Jesus is calling them to authentic faith. Listen to the definition of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is being sure of what we have hoped for and certain of what we do not see. There is a confidence, a surety, a knowing why we believe what we believe that God is asking us in true faith you need to be convinced not just because you believe something passionately but because you know it's true and here's a litmus test okay um, I think there's a good test as to whether or not you really believe what you believe and that's if, if you're willing to share your faith with someone else because none of us have trouble convincing our friends of other things for example, if we had a pop-up conversation about who's the better basketball player, Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan, I guarantee you several of the men in the room would have an opinion. And there would be a side, and there would be swaying of each other, right? We wouldn't be worried about offending each other because I believe something and I'm going to convince you. Or maybe it's, 
you something you got for Christmas and this particular brand that you love, you just think is superior to every other brand and why you convince all your friends and family to buy you that brand is because you're just convinced. You don't have any trouble evangelizing that brand because you're convinced that it's the best. You see what I'm saying? And I think one of the reasons why we struggle is maybe we're not as convinced as we think we are. Point number two. If there is no proof, then there is no truth. God never requires blind faith. Number two, desperation is a tool God uses to get you to examine your beliefs. Desperation is a tool God uses to get you to examine your beliefs. Verse 46. Once more he visited Cana and Galilee, and when he had turned where he had turned water into wine, and there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Now, royal officials were a lot like tax collectors. They weren't very popular figures. They were Jews. They were kind of sellouts to the Roman government. No one loved them. Everyone hated them. They were probably very casual about their Jewish faith, to say the least. This guy is desperate. He's wealthy. I'm sure he got all the best doctors in town, and it didn't matter. His son was dying. And so in his desperation, he walks, takes the 16-mile journey to where he's heard Jesus is going to be, and he says, please come and heal my son. I heard you've got these miraculous powers. This desperation comes into his life and it forces him to examine what he believes and what he's heard about Jesus Christ. And God very oftentimes does that for us. If we were to share stories about how many of you came to faith, you would tell stories of how there were moments of desperation in your life and you cried out to the Lord. And one of the questions that I think that we need to ask when times are tough is why? And instead of being tempted, which we all are, to think that God's out to get us, maybe we should instead look at it as maybe God is lovingly trying to help us understand who he is better and really believe Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, which says, and we know that God works all things for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. It doesn't have to get desperate for you to know why you believe what you believe. But I want you to know that when things do, it may be because God loves you that much. Just like he did this man and his household. Point number three. If there is no proof, then there is no truth. God never requires blind faith. Blind or unexamined faith is sinful, not spiritual. Blind or unexamined faith, point number three, is sinful, not spiritual. Verse 48. Verse 48 is the point of this whole passage. Okay, So if you understand verse 48, you understand the whole passage. Okay, Verse 48 says, Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. You see, the reason I believe John puts this passage in his gospel is because this man was typical of almost every Jew at the time. They really enjoyed seeing all the things that Jesus was going to do, but didn't believe that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, come to save them from their sins. They didn't even have that concept of a Messiah, right? And so he was, this guy was typical of, of the ones, uh, of all that he sees, that they needed to be woken up from their sin. And even though I may have read it with a negative term by saying, you people, I don't think that's the way that Jesus means it at all. I think Jesus is saying, 
you guys won't legitimately believe unless I do these things. Unless I do these signs and wonders. In the first chapter of John, uh, Jesus says that, 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 the, that he came into the world which was his own, but his own did not receive him. They were blind. And what Jesus is doing with his miracles is he's waking them and us out of our blindness to see the reality of who he is. If you were to translate the, this Greek verse uh, word for word, it would go something like this. If not signs and wonders, y'all will not, never, no, not believe. Right? The Greek is very pointed. It uses the aorist tense plus the subjunctive. And I know all y'all know what that means, so I don't have to explain it. But for those of you who don't, it's the strongest negative that you can possibly use in Greek. You will never, ever, never, ever, cannot, not possible, will not believe unless I do signs and wonders. And that word for wonders is the Greek word for kind of omens or God revealing himself to his people in a special way. Okay? You will not believe unless God does these miraculous things for us. There is no other way. Here's what he's saying. You're not going to believe I'm the Messiah unless I show you that I am. You're not going to believe that I'm the Son of God put on human flesh unless I show you that I am God and have the powers of God. This isn't a negative. This is what we need. God calls you to surrender your whole being to Him. That's what it means to be a Christian. God calls you to take up your cross and follow Him. He wants every part of you. Nothing left behind. That's a big ask. But He proves that He is who He says He is over and over and over again. However, sometimes in Christian circles, there's a common misconception that it's more spiritual to believe things without any real data. That's never what God asks us to do. Oh, you just got to believe. Why? Where does God ever ask us to do that? Oh, just believe. You want to know why you should believe? You need to believe because Jesus came down from heaven and walked on water. You want to know why you should believe? You should believe because several times he fed thousands of people with just a small meal. You want to know why you should believe? Because the lame came to him and, and could walk again. The blind came to him and could see. The mute came to him and could talk. The lepers had clean skin again. The reason you need to believe is because he died, and then three days later there was an empty tomb. Amen? I know you guys stayed up late last night, but you hear what I'm saying? There's a reason that you need to believe. And God graciously gave it to you and proved it over and over and over again. God does these miracles to confirm the truth of who he is to us. And you can put your head on the pillow at night and know because of the power that he displayed. Miracles shouldn't be shocking to us. But we need to have a reason to believe. And in a, out of all the ancient literature, we don't have a testimony where someone comes up and says, listen, Jesus was a great magi magician. Jesus didn't actually do all these things. 
In fact, we have 500 people who witnessed the resurrected Jesus Christ. In fact, the main struggle in the early church wasn't that Jesus was a shyster. It was they couldn't believe he was human because they saw all his miracles. The reality is that you need to believe because it's true. And God never asks for blind faith. Point number four. True faith requires action based on God's word. True faith requires action. Faith in Scripture is not just simply believing. It's believing and trusting. We talk about that all the time. In fact, the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for faith is trust. Okay? Um, and so what God asks us to do is to put our faith into action. Part of what it means to believe is to do something about it. That's part of what it means to believe. In fact, James says what? Faith without works is dead. Okay? Part of faith is trust. If you don't trust, then you really don't have faith. And we see that evidence in this passage where, this, where Jesus says to him in verse 50, you may go, your son will live. And it says, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. This is one of the most extraordinary parts of the passage. Here's a royal official. He, there's a likelihood that he had a nominal faith at best. And Jesus says, you can leave now. Your son's healed. You see, this man came to Jesus with two false beliefs. Number one was that Jesus had to be physically present to heal his son. That's why he asked him to come with him. The second false belief he had was that Jesus couldn't raise the dead. That's why he kept asking Jesus to hurry up. And Jesus gets rid of false belief number one, and in chapter 11, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, he gets rid of false belief number two. But he simply explains to the man, and he says, okay, and leaves. And then inquires later and finds out the moment that Jesus said those words, his son was healed. Faith requires action. Do you take Jesus at his word? You know, if you read through, oftentimes when we think of Jesus, we think of a pacifist or a very you know, nice guy, and I'm sure he, he did believe to teach peace and all that stuff, but if you read the Gospels, he says some really hard things. In fact, when we get to chapter 6, he's going to say some shocking things. He does all the time. You, part of faith, is taking Jesus at his word and being willing to act on it. Faith is the only thing that will give you access to heal your soul. There is no other therapeutic available that can heal your soul. And your access to that is legitimate, deep belief based on truth and then a trust that go, runs so far that you're willing to act on it. True faith built on this deep belief and then being willing to act on it. In fact, in Mark chapter 10, a blind man comes up to Jesus and Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do? The blind man says, Rabbi, I want to see. And listen to how Jesus responds. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. How, what, how did he get access to the power that Jesus had to heal his eyes? Through faith. And make no mistake, the power came from Christ. But how did he get access to it? Through faith. How do you get access to salvation for your soul? Same way. It doesn't come from your faith. It's not like you have that power, but it gives you access based on the reality of who Jesus is. Final point this morning. Number five. 
God cares enough about you to change your mind and the minds of the people around you. If there is no proof, then there is no truth. God never requires blind faith. God cares enough about you to change your mind and the minds of the people around you. Jesus, again, took so much time to change the minds of the Jewish people about what a Messiah was and the fact that he was the Son of God. This took deliberate time, and he took the time to change the mind of the Jews. It took three years to do it. Jesus used this miracle in a short conversation to change the mind of this man forever. But Jesus not only had this man in view, but also his entire network of people around him, his household and all the people that worked for him. That, that's what household meant at that point in time. In verse 53, Then the father realized that this was the exact time when Jesus has said, Your son will live, so he and all his household believed. Now I want you to hear me say this. You cannot inherit your faith from your family. That's not possible. But God frequently saves families together. He has done it throughout history in the Bible. And throughout the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit's moving on his church, you see that households come to faith frequently. And in Genesis chapter 17, when he was making his covenant with Abraham, in verse 7 he said, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. But here's the point. This man's faith had an effect on the people around him. And that's true for you. That God loves you so much to change your mind but that's not just for you. That's also for the people around you. And if you'll be convinced, the people around you may be more convinced as well. God has that in mind. That God loves you and knows you and knows that He needs to prove Himself to inspire deep belief and trust. And so He gives us these wonderful things. You know how... Um, Maybe when we were in middle school, high school, whatever, and, and we would play this game where it was like, I think she likes me, she might like me, and then you're talking to your friends, I, I think she likes me, and, and then the, maybe the girls are talking, and when you're in middle school, you pass notes, and maybe y'all text now, I don't know, we pass notes, right? I mean, I don't know. But, and you're playing this game, but then there's that one guy in class where he just doesn't know subtlety at all, right? And he just buys the huge teddy bear and walks up to the girl and slaps the teddy bear on her desk and says, I'm into you, let's go out, right? No subtlety whatsoever with this one, right? That's what God's done for you in Jesus Christ. No subtlety about it. Miracle after miracle after miracle, testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony, historical evidence after historical evidence after historical evidence, logical, the way it works out, the whole nine yards. It's there for you because he is screaming from the heavens that he is real and that he loves you and you can have deep assurance in that. Deep assurance in that. Jesus is the most influential his figure in all of history and no one can argue with that. Why? Because he really did these things. You can lay your head on the pillow 
if you're a believer in Christ with confidence and you can be convinced deep in your soul and you can live a life of faith not because I'm asking you to but because it's true and for those of you who are questioning, questioning Christianity please do please investigate please investigate these claims don't just believe it because I asked you to investigate that's what C.S. Lewis did he knew Christianity was true, was untrue until he investigated it for himself and he found the risen king why? because someone convinced him because someone was persuasive in their arguments because it's true you can believe and God never calls you to blind faith so I ask you again, why do you believe what you believe? Question everything, especially your faith. You will not be disappointed. Father in heaven, as we close this time in worshiping over your word, Lord, we would ask that you would help us, that you would reveal yourself to us in power and in truth, and that there may be moments of desperation in our life right now that you're doing just that for us. Help us to be encouraged by that. Lord, help us to take the challenge to trust you deeply because what you've revealed to us is true and you have never and will never ask us to believe it blindly you've given us 100% proof we can believe confidently today and we ask you to help us do that we pray in Jesus name Amen